Your listenership is so important to us, and we hope you're enjoying the show. If you are able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So does following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your time and support. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and it's always a pleasure to have you with me. Tonight we'll be returning to Anne of Green Gables, but before we do that, Take a moment here to breathe and relax. Let's start by taking a big stretch. Focus on relaxing your muscles. Inhale and squeeze your shoulders up to your ears for a moment and then drop them down fully on your exhale. Think about each thought like a butterfly in a warm, sunny greenhouse. Inhale deeply and imagine gathering together all the butterflies in a big net. Now exhale fully, open the door to the greenhouse and release them. Just remember The thoughts that matter will flutter back tomorrow, but for now, let them fly far away from you. The last time you were here, Marilla had asked Anne to go to the Barry's after dark one night to fetch a pattern for an apron. Due to the lack of exciting adventure of late, Anne and Diana had imagined that the spruce forest was a haunted woods, and Anne was too afraid to now walk through it at night. To prove there was nothing to be scared of, Marilla forced Anne to go regardless, and she arrived home shaken and remorseful. On the last day of June, Anne arrived home weepy from school. Mr. Phillips was leaving Gavin Lee and the girls had felt very emotional, even though no one liked him all that much. She also announced that the new minister and his wife had arrived. Marilla arranged for the young couple to come to tea the following week, and Anne was desperate to make a good impression. She made a layered cake for the occasion, and the cake looked perfect but when it was served up, it became apparent that something was awry. Marilla discovered that instead of vanilla, Anne had used anodyne liniment, and it tasted terrible. Anne was mortified and ran to her room. A short time later, Mrs. Allen went up to see her and told her not to be embarrassed and asked Anne to show her the garden. 
Tonight, we return to our story with Anne looking particularly excited about something. So just close your eyes and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of Anne of Green Gables. Chapter 22 Anne is invited out to tea. And what are your eyes popping out of your head about now? asked Marilla, when Anne had just come in from a run to the post office. Have you discovered another kindred spirit? Excitement hung around Anne like a garment shone in her eyes, kindled in every feature. She had come dancing up the lane like a wind-blown sprite through the mellow sunshine and lazy shadows of the August evening. No, Marilla, but oh, what do you think? I am invited to tea at the manse tomorrow afternoon. Mrs. Allen left the letter for me at the post office. Just look at it, Marilla. Miss Anne Shirley, Green Gables. That's the first time I was ever called Miss. Such a thrill as it gave me. I shall cherish it forever among my choicest treasures. Miss Allen told me she meant to have all the members of her Sunday school class to tea in turn, said Marilla, regarding the wonderful event very coolly. You needn't get in such a fever over it. Do learn to take things calmly, child. For Anne to take things calmly would have been to change her nature. All spirit and fire and a dew as she was, the pleasures and pains of life came to her with trebled intensity. Marilla felt this and was vaguely troubled over it, realizing that the ups and downs of existence would probably bear hardly on this impulsive soul and not sufficiently understanding that the equally great capacity for delight might more than compensate. Therefore, Marilla conceived it to be her duty to drill Anne into a tranquil uniformity of disposition as impossible and alien to her as to a dancing sunbeam in one of the brook shallows. She did not make much headway, as she sorrowfully admitted to herself. The downfall of some dear hope or plan plunged Anne into deeps of affliction. The fulfillment thereof exalted her to dizzy realms of delight. Marilla had almost begun to despair of ever fashioning this waif of the world into her model little girl of demure manners and prim deportment, 
Neither would she have believed that she really liked Anne much better as she was. Anne went to bed that night, speechless with misery, because Matthew had said the wind was round northeast and he feared it would be a rainy day tomorrow. The rustle of the poplar leaves about the house worried her. It sounded so like pattering raindrops and the full, far away roar of the gulf, to which she listened delightedly at other times, loving its strange, sonorous, haunting rhythm, now seemed like a prophecy of storm and disaster to a small maiden who particularly wanted a fine day. Anne thought that the morning would never come. But all things have an end, even nights before the day on which you are invited to take tea at the manse. The morning, in spite of Matthew's predictions, was fine, and Anne's spirits soared to their highest. Oh, Marilla, there is something in me today that makes me just love everybody I see, she exclaimed as she washed the breakfast dishes. You don't know how good I feel. Wouldn't it be nice if it could last? I believe I could be a model child if I were just invited out to tea every day. But oh, Marilla, it's a solemn occasion too. I feel so anxious. What if I shouldn't behave properly? You know I never had tea at a manse before, and I'm not sure that I know all the rules of etiquette, although I've been studying the rules given in the etiquette department of the Family Herald ever since I came here. I'm so afraid I'll do something silly or forget to do something I should do. Would it be good manners to take a second helping of anything if you wanted to very much? The trouble with you, Anne, is that you're thinking too much about yourself. You should just think of Mrs. Allen and what would be nicest and most agreeable to her, said Marilla, hitting for once in her life on a very sound and pithy piece of advice. Anne instantly realized this. You are right, Marilla. I'll try not to think about myself at all. Anne evidently got through her visit without any serious breach of etiquette, for she came home through the twilight under a great, high-sprung sky, gloried over with trails of saffron, and rosy cloud in a beatified state of mind, and she told Marilla all about it happily, sitting on the big red sandstone slab at the kitchen door with her tired, curly head in Marilla's gingham lap. A cool wind was blowing down over the long harvest fields from the rims of furry western hills 
and whistling through the poplars. One clear star and the fireflies were flitting over in Lover's Lane, in and out among the ferns and rustling boughs. Anne watched them as she talked and somehow felt that wind and stars and fireflies were all tangled up together into something unutterably sweet and enchanting. Oh, Marilla, I've had a most fascinating time, she said. I feel that I have not lived in vain, and I shall always feel like that, even if I should never be invited to tea at the manse again. When I got there, Mrs. Allen met me at the door. She was dressed in the sweetest dress of pale pink organdy, with dozens of frills and elbow sleeves, and she looked just like a seraph. I really think I'd like to be a minister's wife when I grow up, Marilla. A minister mightn't mind my red hair, because he wouldn't be thinking of such worldly things. But then, of course, one would have to be naturally good, and I'll never be that, so I suppose there's no use in thinking about it. Some people are naturally good, you know, and others are not. I'm one of the others. No matter how hard I try to be good, I can never make such a success of it as those who are naturally good. It's a good deal like geometry, I expect. But don't you think the trying so hard ought to count for something? Mrs. Allen is one of the naturally good people. I love her passionately. You know there are some people like Matthew and Mrs. Allen that you can love right off without any trouble. And there are others, like Mrs. Lynde, that you have to try very hard to love. You know you ought to love them because they know so much, but you have to keep reminding yourself of it all the time or else you forget. There was another little girl at the Manster Tea from the White Sands Sunday School. Her name was Laurette Bradley, and she was a very nice little girl. Not exactly a kindred spirit, you know, but still very nice. We had an elegant tea, and I think I kept all the rules of etiquette pretty well. After tea, Mrs. Allen played and sang, and she got Loretta and me to sing too. Mrs. Allen says I have a good voice, and she says I must sing in the Sunday school choir after this. You can't think how I was thrilled at the mere thought. I've longed so to sing in the Sunday school choir, as Diana does, but I feared it was an honor I could never aspire to. Loretta had to go home early because there's a big concert in the White Sands Hotel tonight and her sister is to recite at it. 
Noretta says that the Americans at the hotel give a concert every fortnight in aid of the Charlottetown Hospital, and they ask lots of the White Sands people to recite. Loretta said that she expected herself to be asked someday. I just gazed at her in awe. After she had gone, Mrs. Allen and I had a heart-to-heart talk. I told her everything about Mrs. Thomas and the twins and Katie and Violetta and coming to Green Gables and my troubles over geometry And would you believe it, Marilla? Mrs. Allen told me she was a dunce at geometry too. You don't know how much that encouraged me. Mrs. Lynde came to the manse just before I left. And what do you think, Marilla? The trustees have hired a new teacher, and it's a lady. Her name is Miss Muriel Stacy. Isn't that a romantic name? Mrs. Lynde says they've never had a female teacher in Avonlea before, and she thinks it's a dangerous innovation. But I think it will be splendid to have a lady teacher. And I really don't see how I'm going to live through the two weeks before school begins. I'm so impatient to see her. Chapter 23 Anne comes to grief in an affair of honor. Anne had to live through more than two weeks as it happened, almost a month having elapsed since the liniment cake episode. It was high time for her to get into fresh trouble of some sort, little mistakes such as absent-mindedly emptying a pan of skim milk into a basket of yarn balls in the pantry instead of into the pig's bucket, and walking clean over the edge of the log bridge into the brook while wrapped in imaginative reverie, not really being worth counting. A week after tea at the manse, Diana Barry gave a party. Small and select, Anne assured Marilla. Just the girls in our class. They had a very good time, and nothing untoward happened until after tea, when they found themselves in the Barry garden. A little tired of all their games, and ripe for any enticing form of mischief which might present itself. This presently took the form of daring. Daring was the fashionable amusement among the Avonlea small fry just then. It had begun among the boys, but soon spread to the girls, and all the silly things that were done in Avonlea that summer because of the doers thereof, were dared to do them, would fill a book by themselves. First of all, Carrie Sloan dared Ruby Gillis to climb to a certain point in the huge old willow tree before the front door, which Ruby Gillis, albeit in mortal dread of the fat green caterpillars, 
with which said tree was infested, and with the fear of her mother before her eyes if she should tear her new muslin dress, nimbly did, to the discomfiture of the aforesaid Carrie Sloan. Then Josie Pye dared Jane Andrews to hop on her left leg around the garden without stopping once or putting her right foot to the ground, which Jane Andrews gamely tried to do but gave out at the third corner and had to confess herself defeated. Josie's triumph being rather more pronounced than good taste permitted, Anne Shirley dared her to walk along the top of the board fence which bounded the garden to the east. Now, to walk board fences requires more skill and steadiness of head and heel than one might suppose who's never tried it. But Josie Pye, if deficient in some qualities that make for popularity, had at least a natural and inborn gift duly cultivated for walking board fences. Josie walked the Barry fence with an airy unconcern, which seemed to imply that a little thing like that wasn't worth a dare. Reluctant admiration greeted her exploit, for most of the other girls could appreciate it, having suffered many things themselves in their efforts to walk fences. Josie descended from her perch, flushed with victory, and darted a defiant glance at Anne. Anne tossed her red braids. I don't think it's such a very wonderful thing to walk a little, low, board fence, she said. I knew a girl in Marysville who could walk the ridgepole of a roof. I don't believe it, said Josie flatly. I don't believe anybody could walk a ridgepole. You couldn't, anyhow. Couldn't I? said Anne rashly. Then I dare you to do it, said Josie defiantly. I dare you to climb up there and walk the ridgepole of Mr. Barry's kitchen roof. Anne turned pale, but there was clearly only one thing to be done. She walked toward the house where a ladder was leaning against the kitchen roof. All the fifth-class girls said, Oh, in unison, partly in excitement, partly in dismay. Don't you do it, Anne, entreated Diana. You'll fall off and be killed. Never mind, Josie Pye. It isn't fair to dare anybody to do anything so dangerous. I must do it. My honour is at stake, said Anne solemnly. I shall walk that ridgepole, Diana, or perish in the attempt. If I'm killed, you are to have my pearl bead ring. 
Anne climbed the ladder amid breathless silence, gained the ridgepole, balanced herself uprightly on that precarious footing, and started to walk along it, dizzily conscious that she was uncomfortably high up in the world and that walking ridgepoles was not a thing in which your imagination helped you out much. Nevertheless, she managed to take several steps before the catastrophe came. Then she swayed, lost her balance, stumbled, staggered, and fell, sliding down over the sun-baked roof and crashing off it through the tangle of Virginia creeper beneath, all before the dismayed circle below could give a simultaneous terrified shriek. If Anne had tumbled off the roof on the side up which she had ascended, Diana would probably have fallen heir to the pearl bead ring there and then. Fortunately, she fell on the other side, where the roof extended down over the porch so nearly to the ground that a fall therefrom was a much less serious thing. Nevertheless, when Diana and the other girls had rushed, frantically around the house, except Ruby Gillis, who remained as if rooted to the ground and went into hysterics. They found Anne lying all white and limp among the wreck and ruin of the Virginia Creeper. Anne, are you killed? cried Diana, throwing herself on her knees beside her friend. Oh, Anne, dear Anne, speak just one word to me and tell me if you are killed. To the immense relief of all the girls, and especially of Josie Pye, who in spite of lack of imagination had been seized with a horrible vision of a future, branded as the girl who was the cause of Anne Shirley's early and tragic death. Anne sat dizzily up and answered uncertainly, No, Diana, I am not killed, but I think I am rendered unconscious. Where? said Carrie Sloane. Oh, where, Anne? Before Anne could answer, Mrs. Barry appeared on the scene. At sight of her, Anne tried to scramble to her feet, but sank back again with a sharp little cry of pain. What's the matter? Where have you hurt yourself? demanded Mrs. Barry. My ankle, gasped Anne. Oh, Diana, please find your father and ask him to take me home. I know I can never walk there and I'm sure I couldn't hop so far on one foot when Jane couldn't even hop around the garden. Marilla was out in the orchard picking a panful of summer apples when she saw Mr. Barry coming over the log bridge and up the slope. With Mrs. Barry beside him, 
and a whole procession of little girls trailing after him. In his arms he carried Anne, whose head lay limply against his shoulder. At that moment, Marilla had a revelation in the sudden stab of fear that pierced her very heart she realized what Anne had come to mean to her. She would have admitted that she liked Anne, nay, that she was very fond of Anne, but now she knew as she hurried wildly down the slope that Anne was dearer to her than anything else on earth. Mr. Barry, what has happened to her? She gasped more white and shaken than the self-contained, sensible Marilla had been for many years. Anne herself answered, lifting her head. Don't be very frightened, Marilla. I was walking the ridgepole and I fell off. I expect I've sprained my ankle. But Marilla, I might have broken my neck. Let us look on the bright side of things. I might have known you'd go and do something of the sort when I let you go to that party, said Marilla, sharp in her very relief. Bring her in here, Mr. Barry, and lay her on the sofa. Mercy me, the child has gone and fainted. It was quite true. Overcome by the pain of her injury, Anne had one more of her wishes granted to her. She had fainted dead away. Matthew, hastily summoned from the harvest field, was straight away dispatched for the doctor, who in due time came to discover that the injury was more serious than they had supposed. Anne's ankle was broken. That night, when Marilla went up to the east gable, where a white-faced girl was lying, a plaintive voice greeted her from the bed. Aren't you very sorry for me, Marilla? Asked Anne. It was your own fault, said Marilla, twitching down the blind and lighting a lamp. And that is just why you should be sorry for me, said Anne. Because the thought that it is all my own fault is what makes it so hard. If I could blame it on anybody, I would feel so much better. But what would you have done, Marilla, if you had been dared to walk a ridgepole? I'd have stayed on good firm ground and let them dare away. Such absurdity, said Marilla. Anne sighed. Oh, but you have such strength of mind, Marilla. I haven't. I just felt I couldn't bear Josie Pye's scorn. She would have crowed over me all my life, and I think I may have been punished so much that you needn't be so very cross with me, Marilla. It's not a bit nice to faint, after all. And the doctor hurt me dreadfully when he was setting my ankle. I won't be able to go around for six or seven weeks. 
and I'll miss the new lady teacher. She won't be new anymore by the time I go to school. And Gilbert, everybody will get ahead of me in class. Oh, I'm an afflicted mortal, but I'll try to bear it all bravely. If only you won't be cross with me, Marilla. There, there. I'm not cross, said Marilla. You are an unlucky child, there's no doubt about that. But as you say, you'll have the suffering of it. Here now, try and eat some supper. Isn't it fortunate I've such an imagination, said Anne. It will help me through splendidly, I expect. What do people who haven't any imagination do when they break their bones, do you suppose, Marilla? Anne had good reason to bless her imagination many a time and oft during the tedious seven weeks that followed, but she was not solely dependent on it. She had many visitors, and not a day passed without one or more of the schoolgirls dropping in to bring her flowers and books and tell her all the happenings in the juvenile world of Avonlea. Everybody has been so good and kind, Marilla, sighed Anne happily on the day when she could first limp across the floor. It isn't very pleasant to be laid up, but there is a bright side to it, Marilla. You find out how many friends you have. Why, even Superintendent Bell came to see me, and he's a really fine man. Not a kindred spirit, of course, but still, I like him, and I'm awfully sorry I ever criticized his prayers. I believe now he really does mean them, only he has got into the habit of saying them as if he didn't. He could get over that if he'd take a little trouble. I gave him a good broad hint. I told him how hard I tried to make my own little private prayers interesting. He told me all about the time he broke his ankle when he was a boy. It does seem so strange to think of Superintendent Bell ever being a boy. Even my imagination has its limits, for I can't imagine that. When I try to imagine him as a boy, I see him with grey whiskers and spectacles, just as he looks in Sunday school, only small. Now it's so easy to imagine Mrs. Allen as a little girl. Mrs. Allen has been to see me 14 times. Isn't that something to be proud of, Marilla, when a minister's wife has so many claims on her time? She's such a cheerful person to have visit you too. She never tells you it's your own fault and she hopes you'll be a better girl on account of it. Mrs. Lynde always told me that when she came to see me, and she said it in a kind of way that made me feel she might hope I'd be a better girl, but didn't really believe I would. Even Josie Pye came to see me, 
I received her as politely as I could because I think she was sorry she dared me to walk a ridgepole. If I had been killed, she would have had to carry a dark burden of remorse all her life. Diana has been a faithful friend. She's been over every day to cheer my lonely pillow. But oh, I shall be so glad when I can go to school, for I've heard such exciting things about the new teacher. The girls all think she's perfectly sweet. Diana says she has the loveliest fair curly hair and such fascinating eyes. She dresses beautifully and her sleeve puffs are bigger than anybody else's in Avonlea. Every other Friday afternoon, she has recitations and everybody has to say a piece or take part in a dialogue. It's just glorious to think of it. Josie Pye says she hates it, but that's because Josie has so little imagination. Diana and Ruby Gillis and Jane Andrews are preparing a dialogue called A Morning Visit for next Friday. And the Friday afternoons they don't have recitations, Miss Stacy takes them all to the woods for a field day and they study ferns and flowers and birds. And they have physical culture exercises every morning and evening. Mrs. Lynn says she never heard of such goings on and it all comes of having a lady teacher, but I think it must be splendid. And I believe I shall find that Miss Stacy is a kindred spirit. There's one plain thing to be seen, Anne, said Marilla, and that is that your fall off the barry roof hasn't injured your tongue at all. Chapter 24 Miss Stacy and her pupils get up a concert. It was October again when Anne was ready to go back to school. A glorious October, all red and gold, with mellow mornings when the valleys were filled with delicate mists, as if the spirit of autumn had poured them in for the sun to drain. Amethyst, pearl, silver, rose and smoke blue. The dews were so heavy that the fields glistened like cloth of silver and there were such heaps of rustling leaves in the hollows of many stemmed woods to run crisply through. The birch path was a canopy of yellow and the ferns were sear and brown all along it. There was a tang in the very air that inspired the hearts of small maidens, tripping unlike snails, swiftly and willingly to school. And it was jolly to be back again at the little brown desk beside Diana, with Ruby Guinness nodding across the aisle and Carrie Sloan sending up notes and Julia Bell 
passing a chew of gum down from the back seat, Anne drew a long breath of happiness as she sharpened her pencil and arranged her picture cards in her desk. Life was certainly very interesting. In the new teacher, she found another true and helpful friend. Miss Stacy was a bright, sympathetic young woman with the happy gift of winning and holding the affections of her pupils and bringing out the best that was in them mentally and morally. Anne expanded like a flower under this wholesome influence and carried home to the admiring Matthew and the critical Marilla, glowing accounts of schoolwork and aims. I love Miss Stacy with my whole heart, Marilla. She is so ladylike and has such a sweet voice. When she pronounces my name, I feel instinctively that she is spelling it with an E. We had recitations this afternoon. I just wish you could have been there to hear me recite Mary, Queen of Scots. I just put my whole soul into it. Ruby Gillis told me coming home that the way I said the line, Now for my father's arm, she said, my woman's heart farewell, just made her blood run cold. Well now, you must recite it for me some of these days out in the barn, suggested Matthew. Of course I will, said Anne meditatively. But I won't be able to do it so well, I know. It won't be so exciting as it is when you have a whole school fall before you, hanging breathlessly on your words. I know I won't be able to make your blood run cold. Mrs. Lynn says it made her blood run cold to see the boys climbing to the very tops of those big trees on Bell's Hill after crow's nests last Friday said Marilla. I wonder at Miss Stacy for encouraging it. But we wanted a crow's nest for nature study, explained Anne. That was on our field afternoon. Field afternoons are splendid, Marilla, and Miss Stacy explains everything so beautifully. We have to write compositions on our field afternoons, and I write the best ones. It is very vain of you to say so then, remarked Marilla. You better let your teacher say it. But she did say it, Marilla, protested Anne. And indeed, I'm not vain about it. How can I be when I'm such a dunce at geometry? Although I'm really beginning to see through it a little too. Miss Stacy makes it so clear. Still, I'll never be good at it, and I assure you it's a humbling reflection. But I love writing compositions. Mostly Miss Stacy lets us choose our own subjects, but next week 
we are to write a composition on some remarkable person. It's hard to choose among so many remarkable people who have lived. Mustn't it be splendid to be remarkable and have compositions written about you after you're dead? Oh, I would dearly love to be remarkable. I think when I grow up, I'll be trained as a nurse and go to the Red Crosses to the field of battle as a messenger of mercy. That is, if I don't go out as a foreign missionary, that would be very romantic. But one would have to be very good to be a missionary, and that would be a stumbling block. We have physical culture exercises every day too. They make you graceful and promote digestion. Promote fiddlesticks, said Marilla who honestly thought it was all nonsense. But all the field afternoons and recitation Fridays and physical culture contortions paled before a project which Miss Stacy brought forward in November. That was that the scholars of Avonlea School should get up a concert and hold it in the hall on Christmas night for the laudable purpose of helping to pay for a schoolhouse flag. The pupils, one and all, taking graciously to this plan, the preparations for a program were begun at once, and all of the excited performers-elect, none was so excited as Anne Shirley, who threw herself into the undertaking, heart and soul hampered as she was by Marilla's disapproval. Marilla thought it all rank foolishness. It's just filling your heads up with nonsense and taking time that ought to be put on your lessons, she grumbled. I don't approve of children's getting up concerts and racing about to practices. It makes them vain and forward and fond of gadding. But think of the worthy object, pleaded Anne. A flag will cultivate a spirit of patriotism, Marilla. Fudge, Marilla replied. There's precious little patriotism in the thoughts of any of you. All you want is a good time. Well, when you can combine patriotism and fun, isn't it all right? Asked Anne. Of course, it's real nice to be getting up a concert. We're going to have six choruses and Diana is to sing a solo. I'm in two dialogues, the Society for the Suppression of Gossip and the Fairy Queen. The boys are going to have a dialogue too, and I'm to have two recitations. I just tremble when I think of it, but it's a nice, thrilly kind of tremble. And we're going to have a tableau at the last. Faith, hope, and charity. Diana and Ruby and I are going to be in it, all draped in white with flowing hair, I'm to be Hope, 
with my hands clasped so and my eyes uplifted. I'm going to practice my recitations in the garret. Don't be alarmed if you hear me groaning. I have to groan heart-rendingly in one of them, and it's really hard to get up a good artistic groan, Marilla. Josie Pye is sulky because she didn't get the part she wanted in the dialogue. She wanted to be the fairy queen. That would have been ridiculous. For whoever heard of a fairy queen as fat as Josie? Fairy queens must be slender. Jane Andrews is to be the queen, and I'm to be one of her maids of honor. Josie says she thinks a red-haired fairy is just as ridiculous as a fat one, but I do not let myself mind what Josie says. I'm going to have a wreath of white roses on my hair, and Ruby Gillis is going to lend me her slippers because I haven't any of my own. It's necessary for fairies to have slippers, you know. You couldn't imagine a fairy wearing boots, could you? Especially with copper toes. We're going to decorate the hall with creeping spruce and fir mottos with pink tissue paper roses in them. And we are all to march in two by two after the audience is seated while Emma White plays a march on the organ. Oh, Marilla, I know you are not so enthusiastic about it as I am, but don't you hope your little Anne will distinguish herself? All I hope is that you'll behave yourself, said Marilla. I'll be heartily glad when all this fuss is over and you'll be able to settle down. You're simply good for nothing just now with your head stuffed full of dialogues and groans and tableaus. As for your tongue, it's a marvel it's not clean worn out. Anne sighed and betook herself to the backyard, over which a young new moon was shining through the leafless poplar boughs from an apple-green western sky and where Matthew was splitting wood. Anne perched herself on a block and talked the concert over with him, sure of an appreciative and sympathetic listener, in this instance at least. Well now, I reckon it's going to be a pretty good concert, and I expect you'll do your part fine, he said, smiling down into her eager, vivacious little face. Anne smiled back at him. Those two were the best of friends, and Matthew thanked his stars many a time and oft that he had nothing to do with bringing her up. That was Marilla's exclusive duty. If it had been his, he would have been worried over frequent conflicts between inclination and said duty. As it was, he was free to spoil Anne. Marilla's phrasing as much as he liked. 
But it was not such a bad arrangement after all. A little appreciation sometimes does quite as much good as all the conscientious bringing up in the world.